Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I am joined by writer, horrorist, and anonymous internet denizen, Zero H.P. Lovecraft. We talk about anonymity and pseudonymity, peer-to-peer censorship, asymmetric cyber warfare, the origins of Zero H.P. Lovecraft, horrific and utopian technological visions of the future, the dark side of technology, acceleration and human agency, his latest work, Don't Make Me Think, multisensory narrative experiences, cancellation, and the Zero HP NFT. Agora Politics is dedicated to upgrading our outdated theories of politics. Doing so requires honest and forthright engagement with not only academics, entrepreneurs, and intellectuals, but luminaries of all types who are tuning into the zeitgeist and attempting to synthesize stories of the past with knowledge of the present and visions of the future. Anons, like Zero HP, play a vital role in the ecology of the discourse by pushing the Overton window up to, and in some cases, beyond its limits. With that being said, without further ado, I give you Zero HP Lovecraft. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Zero HP Lovecraft. Zero, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. It's, uh, it's very good to have you. And uh, I'm excited to talk a little bit about what we're going to get into today, in particular because uh, you're unlike some of my other guests uh, in that uh, I think you are the first Agora Politics guest who is totally anonymous. Uh, and so <laughs> congrats to you. Uh, one of my goals for the show, actually, um, starting back when I interviewed uh, Josh Schollenberger, I believe uh, in, uh, in March, was to start having more uh, anons on the show. Uh, and part of that, as part of the reason why I want to have more anonymous um, personalities on the show uh, was because there are certain things that they are allowed to say or that they're willing to say that individuals acting under their own identity uh, will not or cannot in certain in certain cases. Uh, and so it's always interesting to me the dynamics between sort of the, the anons and the non-anons um, that happens on Twitter. Uh, I actually, uh, the other week, I hosted a conversation on Clubhouse uh, that was about uh, pseudonymity and varying shades of identity exposure that you can have on the internet that uh that was a, a quite an interesting conversation as well we actually managed to get uh at least one sort of uh cybersecurity expert who talked a little bit about um you know the the varying degrees of interconnectedness uh with your actual identity that you could sort of leave online whether you want to be uh you know whether you wanted to go by your identity or pseudonym pseudonymously or anonymously uh, those are sort of three varying levels of security control. Um, so how do you think about the choice to, you know, not only write under a pen name, but also to, you know, maintain this sort of uh, online anonymous persona? Well, there are a few considerations. The first is that there really is no such thing as true anonymity. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
whether you talk about my phone, my computer, uh, you know, my browser. Yeah, I use a VPN, but mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Like if there, there are people in this world who, if they wanted that information, if they wanted to unmask me, they absolutely could. And that's true no matter who you are and what you do, though you can make it easier or harder. So I, I try to do everything I can to have what we call operational security. But I mean, ultimately, we're all sort of at the mercy of uh, the people who own the pipes the people who own the technology, you know, Apple, Google, and, and people like that. Yeah. So, well, uh, still, yeah, I try to make it as hard as I can to them. Well, I was going to say, I, uh, I was sending out messages yesterday and uh, Twitter actually made me go ahead and finally verify my, uh, my phone number with them uh, for my main account. And so I was like, dang, okay, guys, you're, you're getting real serious about this. And, and the, the, notification I got was that if you want to send messages to accounts that you don't follow, you need to verify your phone number. And of course, you know, they already know all of my other accounts because I'm not, I'm not going out of my way to sort of, you know, uh, compartmentalize those, you know, at the level of physical devices or anything like that. Uh, but uh, I always, I, I did think it was interesting that they're sort of trying to, I, I, I do worry that ultimately they're going to close the, the gates on all of this stuff and really force everyone to um, at least identify uh, who they are totally on the back end, uh, if not outright in, in public. Yeah, a, a lot of us do use burner phones, uh, mm -hmm. purchase cash for those who are really paranoid. And you can do varying degrees of, of obfuscation around that, but still, like, ultimately, People can find you. I think that what will happen, what is, has already happened, uh, is something called social cooling. You may have heard this term. It's the idea that even without any kind of explicit rules about what you can and can't say, people are just increasingly fearful about talking around certain topics and sharing their honest opinions. Even if those opinions aren't harmful to anyone, we all just know certain things you can and can't say. And so what happens is the temperature of conversation just cools down and we all sort of retreat into banal platitudes and pleasantries. We say exactly what we're allowed to say and we don't venture off the, the reservation. That's what happens. And the more identity is tied to what you say online, the more that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, certainly there is a uh, a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, mechanism that's in place, right? That's causing a kind of self-censorship on a, on a massive scale. Uh, and I think it's slightly different depending on your, um, your national context. You know, there's certain things Americans are going to be more comfortable about, more uncomfortable about than non-Americans. Um, but of course, one of the problems with our sort of the, the monoculture <laughs> globalization that's happening uh, uh, across the internet and it's particularly across the Anglosphere is that uh, increasingly the topics that are taboo or that the things that can't be said in an American context are sort of leaking out into other parts of the world and essentially among a certain class of people, they're all sort of aligning along the same kind of, uh, you know, moralistic values. Right. The borders of the internet are much more porous than 
national borders or geographic borders. So it's really hard, unless like China has closed off the internet, for example, more or less, you can still break through, but it's harder. And sometimes I wonder, people have talked about, will we see every country to the degree it's capable, sort of like walling off the internet? Could the internet ever have borders the way countries do? It's possible. Well, I think it probably will eventually because there's too much of an asymmetric uh, advantage if, for example, you're a country like China who has the ability to uh, well operate as a state inside of everyone else's internet, but doesn't allow the other way around, right? So, you know, we've got like TikTok here in the United States and there's no way that they would allow, I mean, they haven't allowed Facebook or, or Twitter or something like that to be openly operating in China. Um, because of course they know, they know what kind of, uh, influence you can carry, what kind of favors you can ask, uh, even with, uh, a, a more, I'd say light touch of government influence on these, uh, these platforms here in the United States. Uh, you don't want the weapons of your enemy to just be sort of growing and gaining power inside your own country. Indeed. And I saw just today that China had banned, uh, maybe it was yesterday, China had banned some kind of, was it, it wasn't OnlyFans, I think that was already banned, but uh, it was Twitch, whatever it was, increasingly cut off the, these types of, of avenues for their own people. Like they understand the harm that some these things are doing to them, not just as a weapon of like destabilizing a state, but you think about like, uh, there's a very way, real way that Instagram and TikTok and Twitch are all kind of a sales funnel for OnlyFans, especially like, I mean, for young women. So you, you get these girls, uh, you know, when they're 13, 14 or whatever, they can make a TikTok, they start dancing and they get attention. And the, the attention economy of these types of services, Instagram the same way, it rewards women for posting a certain type of content. And as they get a little older, it almost, they very naturally, if they just follow the incentive gradient, they can end up on OnlyFans. And I think that in China, they sort of understand this, like the people in charge can see it and they're willing to prioritize the health of their population over whatever other crass incentives like drive something like OnlyFans. But in the US, they're just not willing. There's no will to do this. There's no political power to do this. No one's ever going to ban girls from, you know, young girls from streaming TikTok here. It's just not going to happen. They uh, try, actually. Yeah. They tried to ban TikTok, you remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, I have younger sisters who uh, I don't know. I think they're somewhat limited by their parents, but uh, they, you know, were they were they're already on TikTok, right? And they they starting on TikTok at, you know, twelve and thirteen years old, and uh, you know they're going to be using it and at least browsing it. You know, they're on Instagram uh, all through their teenage years, and if you think about the mentality in particular that a teenage girl has around the time that they're uh, they're developing around that, that period. Uh, what they want is, you know, they want attention from others. They want attention from their peers. They want attention also from the boys that they like. And they're getting like 
insane amounts of uh, relatively low cost social approval uh, if they can post on those platforms. Uh, and so you, you do have to wonder what exactly that's going to do to them uh, long term, uh, particularly the, the kids that are coming up now who are totally enmeshed in this stuff. You know, uh, when I was growing up, it was already starting to be a little bit of a problem. Um, but, you know, I think Instagram came around when I was like in high school. And uh, before that, you know, there was like Facebook or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's certainly it, it, you, you, had, you do have to wonder at, at some point, like why there is no political will. Do you think it just has to do with sort of the de Christianization of the West and sort of the secularization that we're unwilling to put up any kind of moral guardrails on this stuff because there is a kind of moral moralizing and various kinds of moral panics that occur right now, uh, but they don't seem to be concerned at all with uh, sexual libertinism unless, of course, uh, you're uh, you know a heterosexual male trying to find a mate and then it's and then you're a problem. But all, all other kinds of sexual display and sexual um, degeneracy i'll say are totally permitted and in fact you're probably a bad person if you're trying to to rein any of it in at all how do you think that relates to sort of the 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 secularization and the the moral um uh uh i don't want to say corruption but the moral inversion that's been going on since sort of the decline of christianity and the rise of pseudo uh, religion, things like wokeness, et cetera, here in the United States. How do you think about those? That's a bit of a landmine of a question, but I think one of the, there's a couple sort of dimensions to it. One is that we have been convinced, that is our government has been convinced in our courts and our, our legal system, that pornography is a form of free speech. So in you know, the, the 70s, the 80s, uh, there have been, there was a lot of talk about decency and obscenity and, and what it is that you can publish, what kind of material you can sell. And the pornographers, they all got through it by saying, look, this is free speech. The First Amendment protects pornography. And so there's a, there's a legal dimension to it where we're kind of just in a gridlock there. If you try to ban porn, the argument inevitably comes back like, well, just don't inflict uh, your beliefs on others. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to watch it. And that, that sort of libertarian stance is something that still animates a lot of Americans, both on the left and the right. We really want to believe in individual liberty in this way. And I would say that there's a lot of problems with, with that stance. There's there's no such thing. No, one's, no one truly is an island. There's no true individual liberty. What we do affects each other, even if it's just in a very marginal way. And I think that the, the argument for individual liberty has, has crumbled, but many people haven't quite figured that out yet. The other thing is there's not really anyone with the authority to ban these things in, at the state level. Like there's no politician who can do it. I, I guess there might be some bureaucrat somewhere deep in Washington, D.C. Who, who could theoretically do it. That's just not how the bureaucracy functions. If anyone were to do it, it would have to be someone inside of Apple, someone inside of Google. You know, these people would have to collaborate with each other. And they're really bureaucrats, too. Uh, 
they're just private bureaucrats. That's all. So it's like, who, who would you even go to? Let's say you wanted to ban it, like you personally, and you started a movement. Maybe you sign, maybe you get a petition together. Who would you take that petition to? Is, is the president going to do it? Like, there's no one. There's, there's no head. No one's driving. Well, so there is a movement right now to sort of shut down um, these like uh, these like large scale tube sites like like Pornhub and uh, and YouPorn and, and whatnot. There's a, at least one activist I know of on Twitter who has been going after them uh, in a legal sense and trying to do this whole exposure campaign because of sort of the um, the dark, really dark, seedy, uh, you know, things that are going on with some of these videos that are posted against people's consent or uh, in some cases, even just straight up snuff films uh, that get, that get uploaded. Uh, And so again, um, there's this kind of uh, like the way that it's being done now is sort of in a roundabout way by trying to sort of force the platforms themselves to take responsibility for the content that's on them, Uh, which might, might actually work. But uh, I don't I don't know exactly what all the legal um, issues are around that. It, it's just that interesting that um, it, it it's being made on more of like privacy grounds and, uh, you know, issues uh, uh, relating to consent and so forth. And not just the fact that like, oh, this is damaging to our people. <laughs> um, right. They, they can't make that argument. The, the, that avenue has been closed off. So instead they have to argue, oh, these girls are being, you know, they're victims of human trafficking. Yeah. Undeniably true in some cases. Or, you know, that they have to they have to find other things to bust them on. It's the equivalent of, you know, going after uh, a murderer or something like that and busting them on a marijuana charge. That's yeah, or, or that's, when they that's when they kind got, of the kind of take. When they got Al Capone on tax evasion, you know. <laughs> um Right. But what will actually happen if these activists are successful, and, and they very likely could be, you do see some of them getting press in, you know, major uh, periodicals like The Atlantic or The New York Times or whatever. What would happen? It won't actually get the porn. Instead, you'll start to see some, you know, more regulation come in, which will actually just entrench the big players, probably like, I don't know, Pornhub or whatever will be fine. They'll clamp down, they'll essentially use this relation to discourage their smaller competitors. Not that I'm arguing that we need competition in the porn space, but that's what regulation like this always inevitably does is it's not a strategy for curating the health of the populace. It's a strategy for destroying your competition in a market space. So you'll start to see porn that has like a seal that's like, this is ethically sourced porn, that Mm. kind of thing. It's like the equivalent of buying organic groceries yeah organic yeah that's uh that's an interesting uh parallel there and you know i think they're going to do something similar with the platforms uh, other social platforms as well um you know like as far as closing uh closing the door on um on you know misinformation or whatever they want to call it on twitter on youtube on all these places really what you're doing is even if they put these kinds of tools in place, they're just going to be making it harder for upstarts to actually build out their own networks again, because now you have, you know, additional tools and additional responsibilities and, you know, legal issues that you have to count for uh, that you need capital for 
um, in order to even get to, to even be, you know, in compliance. So anyway, um, so right. I, I wanted to get to a little bit more about, you know, who you are and uh, how you came into the online space. Uh, you, I know from uh, hearing about, uh, you know, your posts online, so I've been following you for a number of years. And I know from hearing about your other posts online that you were sort of a, a lurker in various online communities for a long time. And then at some point decided to, um, you know, create this persona and start putting your writing out under that name. Uh, what made you decide to sort of want to start building out an online persona? And did you know that you wanted to be anonymous from the beginning? I always knew that I wanted anonymity. I never set out to be a character or a, a person in this space. I just, uh, you know, I, I found it interesting. Do you remember a really old website called grouphug.us? No. It was sort of a brief, well, it, it was a small uh, social media network that was probably alive for less than a year. And it was, you could only be anonymous. And it just, you didn't have to make an account. You just went onto the site. There was a text box and you could write your anonymous confession and people just upvoted and share it. And, and so people would just say what they wanted. They just did off their chest and they, it, it could be, you know, really, really mundane stuff. Like I, uh, I took a dollar you know, from, from like that I shouldn't, like I stole someone's money, simple stuff, people confessing sexual infidelity, things that aren't even, some things that weren't even, you know, bad at all. Just like I had an extra slice of ham on my sandwich, anything, it could be anything. And so to me, when I first made a Twitter account, uh, there were some of these people I followed, people like Nick Land, or uh, at the time, Bronze Age Pervert was not even a name, no one really knew who he was. I just, uh, I, I made an anonymous account and I sort of treated it like grouphug.us. It was a confession box, an anonymous confession box. And so I just started saying really whatever I wanted and, uh, you know, didn't get any attention for it. I wasn't, I wasn't preaching. I wasn't speaking my truth, as they say, but I did like writing fiction. So I kind of toiled with no expectation of anyone reading my work at all. I just wrote a story because I wanted to write a story because I thought it was interesting uh, to me personally because I was seeing all these things online and I wanted to incorporate them into some kind of a narrative and that turned into the gig economy. And so I posted it there, you know, uh, I was at the gym. I remember this very clearly. I had worked on the story for about 10, uh, almost a year. Uh, sent it to a couple of my friends, you know, who knew me, my name, my face and everything. And they said, hey, you know, this is, this is really good, actually. And they were surprised. I was surprised that they thought it was good. I posted it to my 50 followers, uh, made a tweet between sets. I don't know what I was doing, probably deadlift or something. And didn't think anything of it. And then suddenly, like that weekend, my phone just nonstop vibrating from the, the Twitter notifications. This was before they grouped them all together. So every single like, every retweet, every comment was like its own notification. Mm -hmm. And uh, the phone just didn't, like, you know, I had to put it on silent. 
And it was crazy. I'd never experienced anything like that before. Funny because I had written about it in the story, yeah. never having experienced it. And suddenly I had thousands of followers in one weekend. And people were like, the story went viral. Eliezer Yudkowsky tweeted it with some disclaimer like, oh, you know, even a neo reactionary can write something good, but he's so horrible. That kind of thing. Sure. So uh, I remember reading The Gig Economy myself uh, a while back. Uh, I don't know if, it, if I was reading it right when it came out or sometime afterwards or uh, how, what exactly the timeline there was, but I do remember reading it and it having an impression on me. For those who haven't read The Gig Economy, do you want to give the audience just a brief uh, rundown on kind of the main uh, ideas and theme in the story? Yeah, so it's a story ultimately about the tech of capital singularity. And at the time that I wrote it, uh, Bitcoin had, well, I started when Bitcoin was in its first really crazy bull market. And uh, it went up to what was it like $19,000 a coin uh, in January of 2017 before it took a dive. You know, Ethereum peaked around. I want to say like 1700 per token. So all the, all the altcoins and shit coins were pumping and everyone was just in this mind of like, wow, the machine is rising. The, uh, the global system of capital is renewing itself. And at the time, uh, except so, so a lot of people were talking about techno capital and this kind of like right-wing Marxism. So I, I incorporated a lot of those ideas. And the, the basic idea of accelerationism is that capital functions like a machine, that it continuously reorganizes the world for the multiplication and uh, propagation of itself, and that it will reorganize society and produce machines which are ultimately capable of playing the market and expanding it better than humans are. And accelerationism views this as relatively inevitable. So I was inspired by that kind of philosophy that I was seeing online. I was inspired by uh, the guy who made Primer. I always forget his name. He had this brilliant script for a movie that was never made called A Topiary. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of about this uh, interstellar paperclip maximizer. And that was really uh, a source of inspiration to me as well, and Borges and all usual stuff. So uh, in the story, there is a, an emergent artificial intelligence living on some blockchain. It's not really specified what blockchain it is that's computing itself publicly across the world in all of these exchanges of tokens, and that it starts giving people jobs to do, little jobs to sort of grow out its sensory awareness of the world and to manipulate the course of human events. And then in the sort of ultimate reveal, we find out that it, uh, this AI actually came from outer space from some distant star and uh, wormed its way through history. It was part of, there's a, a tie into the Tower of Babel. It sounds very strange when I explain it this way, but uh, it all sort of comes together into this Lovecraftian pastiche yes so i think that's a, a good uh 
good place to then get into kind of the one of the core themes around your account, which is obviously uh, zero H. I'm sorry, HP Lovecraft himself. Um, and uh, you call yourself a horrorist. Uh, and what you mean by that is actually something uh, very particular. You know, what you're writing is more along the lines of like uh, a sci-fi horror, right? And um, it's interesting to me because the kinds of horrors you confront uh, in your writing that's sort of influenced by this accelerationist paradigm are these uh, very impersonal and uh, almost uncanny like machinations, right? That are sort of beyond us or almost godlike to us. This is, uh, you know, you can see sort of the, the Lovecraftian influence there. Um, and uh, it's not uh, like, like, how do you, do you, do you think that the future of sci-fi is limited to these sort of horroristic um, uh, incantations or do you, or, or is there some sort of positive vision of the future? And do you think that the, uh, the former, is uh, part of like an effect of our own feelings of alienation and misunderstanding in terms of the situatedness uh, that, that we feel that we're in in relation to these technological tools. Um, one of the things that uh, I was thinking about, uh, the, uh, I had a conversation the other week with, um, with Nina Power on uh, Ivan Illich, who's sort of a left-wing Catholic anarchist and he has this uh notion of uh tools for conviviality which essentially uh i haven't read the book but essentially the essential idea is basically how do we uh go from tools uh you know using us to us using tools so it's sort of a, a backwards looking uh kind of frame of things and he was sort of a traditionalist um but your what i see in a lot of your writing and in sort of the themes more generally that come out of it is this sort of feeling that it's the technology itself that is kind of taking on this monst monstrous character and is having an influence over us that is not uh, both not in our control, but also not entirely intelligible to us. Is that how you conceptualize technology uh, and its experience to contemporary um, people? Uh, particularly those who are maybe not as technically inclined, that it's some sort of outside larger than life entity. And that uh, there are sort of all these kinds of uh, horrors in wait for us behind them. Uh, so I've been thinking about this exact question quite a bit lately, and I sort of zoom in on a, a particular phrase you said, which was a positive vision. And I'd really like to know the provenance of this phrase because you hear it all the time from many different people that say it's not enough to criticize, you have to express a positive vision. And so I think many people are looking for a positive vision and some people will say of someone like me, like that I don't have one, which is uh, probably, tr probably true I'm thinking a lot about what no one really knows what a positive vision looks like. And I'm actually writing sort of an essay on this topic quite a bit. I've been influenced quite by Peter Thiel. Yes. Who talks about this. He points out that, he points out that 
really too many people who are on the technology right now. Overall, he, he points out how in like, say the 60s, there were still these kind of utopian visions of the world being better through technology, everyone's healthier and happier and more productive. You look at something like the Jetsons, everyone kind of lives in space and everything is super convenient. But for some reason, there's no, like their, their frictions and their tensions in life are just trivialities. They're sort of the last men. And then obviously the Jetsons is a kid show. They're not going to wrestle with that. There's um, a, sort of a, a fan canon that says that the Flintstones and the Jetsons are happening at the same time. And the Jetsons are up above and the Flintstones are, are down below on earth. Like, and it's actually this dystopian world. And I think that's really telling. It's the only way we can make sense of something like that now, looking back in 21, like there's no way that people are just content with that. There has to be an under and a lower class. There has to be exploitation. There has to be something going on there. Um, but so the, the really, to go back to, to your question a little, the, the sort of key thing we're, we're trying to ask here is like, is there, is a technological utopia possible in any way? Like, does every technology we make just curl like a monkey's paw? Does it always come back to bite us? And I've been looking for cases, for examples of a technology that hasn't done that. You know, we look at like medical technology, things like, okay, penicillin, that seems to be pretty much an unalloyed good. It's really, really hard for me to find an, a way that penicillin makes the world a dystopia. So that one, that one's probably best. Although you could argue that penicillin has freed up people to behave in very sexually promiscuous ways that maybe they couldn't have prior to that discovery. And maybe it does degrade our social fabric. Maybe just knowing that, you know, if I sleep around, I can go get an injection in my dick and not die of syphilis, maybe, maybe that's a really bad thing for society, even if it's really good for every individual. So there's sort of, I, I think back then when a lot of these industrial technologies like plastics and you know, new medicines and agricultural methods, there's something called the, the second green revolution when we figured out how to like, you know, 100X the food output of a plot of land through fertilizers and pesticides and various other techniques. It's like all, of, but that precipitated the obesity epidemic, mm -hmm. right? So every single good advance that we look at and say, all right, we have this amazing achievement. I guess it's progress. We can also point to all these horrible trade-offs and we can no longer look at these, to, at, at our technological advances without considering their dark trade-offs. And so all I really do is I look at technologies that are emerging now, things that are honestly pretty cool and exciting. Like Neuralink is an amazing idea in some sense, right? So is, uh, so is augmented reality. So is cryptocurrency. But every single one of those things, we can also look at all the downsides and we can project the worst excesses of their downsides and it makes it really hard to be a techno-optimist uh, in this day and age. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, so I have a few places I could go with that. Uh, one of which is this sort of 
uh, trade-offs, right? That, that I'm glad you, you mentioned the word trade-offs because that was exactly the word that I was thinking about using uh, within sort of the dis design space of these technologies, right? So uh, whenever we make an innovation, right? Innovation is, is often defined very um, succinctly as sort of doing more with less. And uh, if you take that to be the, the definition of innovation, well, then all of these technologies would be assumed to uh, ultimately be having a, uh, a net positive sum effect on, you know, let's say our standard of living. Um, and yet, when you sort of look at all these negatives that you're talking about here, these sort of, let's call them externalities, just to use economic terms, um, they are, uh, you know, it, it, it's unclear. It, it, in almost some sense, you know, you use the word progress there and you use it somewhat hesitantly. Uh, because this whole concept that we're talking about almost calls into question the idea of progress itself, right? If, if all of our technology, you know, we're the, we're the Faustian civilization, right? So this is a Faustian theme. If all of our technology is uh, indeed making some sort of pact, let's say with the devil, that uh, always has a, um, a corresponding downside, right? As above, so below, uh, then the idea that actual progress is even possible in any real sense is sort of called into question. Really what you're having is you're having actually like a uh, uh, more like an intensification or a, uh, a, uh, a magnification or a glorification of sort of the state of existence in, in increasing, increasingly polar extremes, um, right? So for example, uh, they say that, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Gini uh, coefficient for measuring inequality, right, <clears throat> is something that we always have to contend with uh, because by and large, the more wealthy we become, the more unequal we become, right? And, and you know, there are various kinds of economic arguments about, you know, you know a, a rising tide raising all, all boats. And I think there's some serious truth to that. Um, that being said, <clears throat> Uh, there is this problem of the equivalent downside and, uh, and what that means for us. Uh, I wanted to get into a little, a few of the things you said there about Peter Thiel, because uh, I'm just a huge, uh, I've been following Peter, Dan, Peel, yeah, Peter Thiel for a long time myself. Uh, and I've always find his thought to be uh, very intriguing. And the fact that he's able to sort of go to war with uh, competing perspectives inside of his own mind and then present them, in a very, um, I'd say, uh, nuanced way, at least when he's speaking in public, uh, is something that uh, I admire and that I aspire to, uh, you know, become better at doing myself. And one of the things he says about our sort of view of, of technology or views of the future that, that you alluded to is that when you posit these two extremes, right, that the future will either be terrible and, uh, you know, the human, I, I know a few friends who think that, like, humans are going to just like destroy the planet and we need to like, you know, do degrowth and everybody needs to like start their own organic farm and try to like disconnect from the supply chains. Right. So there's a sort of that vision of the future. Uh, and then there's sort of this alternate vision of the future, which is sort of this techno uh, utopian vision, which is sort of along the lines of like, uh, I guess many of the tech techno visionaries or transhumanist crowd uh, that you see out of places like Silicon Valley or, or whatnot. <clears throat> And I think Thiel's 
uh, one of Teal's core points about either of those two visions of the future is that they're both sort of a way to uh, kind of lull us to sleep from actually thinking in concrete terms uh, about what the future would actually look like. This question of a positive vision uh, that, that, you, uh, that you noted. Um, and that if we're going to assert that one should put forward a positive vision or ask them what your positive vision is, like I did uh, earlier in this conversation, then there needs to be, uh, th then really what we're asking for is we're asking for like concrete, a concrete implementation. Uh, and that doesn't, uh, that doesn't either go towards um, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, mediated Armageddon or, uh, or, or some sort of uh, utopian uh, transhumanism, because either of those perspectives uh, both sort of freeze us in place because we're so far away from realizing any of them that in a way they um, they can serve to sort of keep the status quo uh, chugging along. Uh, with regard to your accelerationist uh, influences, I know that you were heavily influenced uh, by uh, by Nick Land and uh, by Moldbug as well. Do you do you think that? accelerationism is not simply that this the idea that this um this uh you know i guess the 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 machinations of capital and it's sort of lifelike uh you know increasing uh attraction of resources human resources uh <laughs> to itself is not just an inevitability but it's also something that should be um either resisted or encouraged? Is there a, an element of human agency in your conception of uh, acceleration? I know, sorry, that was a long I sort of question. go back. Mm -hmm. No, no, I, I go back and forth on that myself. Um, I think that if the market, which is sort of a, a bad abstraction, and we shouldn't really just talk about the market, there is no the market, right? There's, um, there's layers of markets and anti-markets, and there are there's human agency at every level of the market, and people sort of like buying for advantage, and, and things that are maybe really good from a strictly market perspective can be unviable for social reasons or for reasons of the ambition of, of individual actors. There, I I think that when it comes to like specific technological advances, uh, things like you know even something like AWS, like would we have cloud-based infrastructure if it weren't for Jeff Bezos making a very particular decision in sort of the mid-2000s about the way his company would scale and be structured. And I actually think the answer might well be no, because there were other approaches to scaling up. And before Amazon kind of like went through this long and painful process of, of building out AWS, everyone just built on-premises server clusters and everyone had their own, uh, you know, on-site staff to manage these things. It, sure, we could have gone into a cloud-based direction. Maybe the winds were blowing that way, but I think individual actors uh, at the apex really can have an outsized influence on the direction of technological growth. That said, once a technology is loose, it never goes back. Uh, in the box like if amazon completely disintegrated and flew off the face of the earth tomorrow we would still understand how to 
like cloud-based computing paradigms. Those are going nowhere. And now that we have it, anyone who doesn't use it is at a huge competitive disadvantage in almost every way. I could go stack up a bunch of servers in a warehouse somewhere and try to run my own server cluster and you know, do my own hosting. Certainly there's people who do that. But if I start up and I want to, you know, actually solve the business problems that I'm trying to solve, I do not want to solve all of those infrastructure problems. And so you can't, you can individually opt out of a technological solution, but as long as there's sort of an equilibrium where people who use it are able to outcompete those who don't, the technology will, will go on. Um, so... Is there human agency with regard to accelerationism? I'd say the answer is yes, uh, with some qualifications. Okay. The qualifications, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say like, so these questions can always be a little bit, uh, a little bit too overdetermined. Um, one of the things to think about though, is this idea of convergence, right? So like, would, would AWS uh, is, would AW, the AWS model have happened anyway? Um, because, you know, with, you know, in a hypothetical world without a Jeff Bezos leading the charge, uh, because it just sort of makes sense. And like, if you look at, um, if you look at like the search space, right, of, uh, of possible technologies, well, the ones that are, um, that are viable uh, in terms of a business, a business model within that search space is smaller than the ones that are possible. And then on top of that, the ones that are discovered uh, within that have to be smaller than the ones that are viable. Um, and so, and then even within the ones that are discovered, uh, it's probably very unlikely that there would only be one or two or three um, that you could stumble upon that uh, would be, you know, possible, viable, and discovered. Uh, there could be many more. Uh, and so it is always sort of an open question whether or not, um, whether or not what, what we what we have is the only thing that could have happened or if it could have would have inevitably ended up here uh, regardless. Um, so, yeah. you know, you're not an explicitly um, political thinker, at least in your writing. Uh, I think there are political implications or political. Um, uh, um, what do I want to say? There are political implications and there are political, uh, uh, I guess there are polemic angles that one could, I guess, political interpretations that one could have uh, based on your writing itself. But of course, you're a fiction writer um, and none of your work is explicitly concerned with those issues. But of course, I think anyone that's familiar with your work uh, and who's a little bit aware of kind of the online spaces that you're coming out of knows that there are these sort of accelerationist ties um, and sort of esoteric um, references that are built into these things. And so how do you self-conceptualize your own politics? We've talked a little bit about who your influences are. Um, and do you think that there is a problem right now, and I'll just make this about um, about the right, uh, with them not being forward looking enough? It seems to me, um, from my own experiences uh, over the last few years, being around various different uh, dissident spaces, talking to people both on the left and the right, um, that 
uh, really there's a, there is a lack. And, and this is why I asked you about the positive vision. There is a lack of um, conceptualization of what the future should entail. And there is a broad uh, widespread sense that the uh, options that are on the menu uh, by the current political institutions and parties that we have, uh, particularly here in the United States, uh, are just totally nonsensical for our time. They don't make any sense. They don't uh, resonate really with the generations that are coming up now. They're really an artifact of, uh, of the mid-century. Uh, and it's clear that they're outdated and that they're, they're no longer serving us. But what's not clear is what kind of uh, what kind of new paradigms that we're going to be headed into into the future. So first, do you have a um, explicitly, would you say, political um, orientation that's sort of embedded into your work? And then in addition to that, do you think that um, the various kinds of uh, dissident spaces uh, that exist online are beginning to sort of um, congeal around um, something that, that, that could look like a coherent um, offering for those that are preparing to kind of move into the next uh, phase of, uh, let's say, our political paradigms? I'll answer your questions in reverse order. Uh, do I see it congealing into like new paradigms and a positive direction? The short answer, unfortunately, is no, because what people there's there's always been this tension. Even like I mean, I remember back in 2013, the original sort of Moldbug fan club uh, developed this whole trichotomy of orientations, which you may or may not have seen, um, and they described themselves as ethnic nationalists techno-commercialists, and I always forget what the third one was, but basically they were Christian ones. Um, because you had like sort of Catholics coming in and going, oh, monarchy, I like that. And then you had these kind of post-libertarians coming in and saying, oh yeah, market solutions to governance, I like that. And then you had the ethnic nationalists who are sort of a dumpster fire. But, <clears throat> and, and me, the less said about them, the better, unfortunately. Uh, but, but the online right has this really divided sort of uh, set of desires. They, they want two things that are perfectly contradictory. One, they hate technology on the whole. I mean, they use technology. Haha, you're very smart. But they don't like it. They point to the evils. This is something I do in a sense of all the new technologies that come out. Communications technology uh, is used as an instrument of mass control and mass demoralization and it spreads all these horrible sort of lifestyle sort of lifestyle sort of lifestyle for hazards and they sort of hate sort of advances with a few exceptions for things like space travel which i won't put to shit on and on the other hand they want to live in a society where People are sort of smart and free and able to pursue like their own uh, best perception of their interests. And what would happen if people lived their life in that way is they would invent things, they would create new technologies. That's sort of one sign of flourishing is that you have ingenuity and you invent. And, and they will simultaneously 
hold up the history, like the greatest figures of, of history as they see it as people like who are inventors and thinkers and innovators. And, you know, we want to be in a society like that. And we also hate all the new technology that's coming out. And so you can't possibly reconcile these two visions. You can't live in wholly traditional ways while also constantly wanting to bring new technological development to the world. So if, if they are to congeal, it's not going to happen in this sort of morass of these two conflicting desires, as much as a synthesis of contradictions is often the way forward. It's going to take someone of a very singular character, really a leader, someone who has who does have a vision. And I, I'm going to say, I don't think that person is me as much as I'd like it to be, <laughs> to sort of articulate that synthesis and drive them forward. But, but if you were to just take what we have now, there's no great showing point, and there's no single person who can really say what that vision would be. Um, to go to your first question, I think um, I was actually doing some research on this myself. There, there is, I think you were referring to feel where there's sort of these two doors of like the eco future where we all just kind of break away and go off grid. And then there's like this sort of techno communist future where everything is just a total technological panopticon. And it's basically, uh, you end up with the board from Star Trek, which is a point that I couldn't help but raise in exactly that way in my latest story. Um, the thing is, both of these can exist simultaneously. And what will happen is that the techno-capitalist society and the, the eco-minimalist society can just coexist in the same space and really hardly even bother each other at all. They don't care. One of them is, is going to the stars, uh, you know, through effort with aspiration. And the other one is just sort of earthbound. I think it's like, uh, it's like a phase shift when water freezes, there's still liquid water around a lot of the time when it evaporates, there's still liquid water. So you're talking about different phases of society. They can exist in simultaneity. There's not one future. There's many. Yeah. So I, you're, you're uh, recalling to, to my mind, uh, the vision of the Flintstones and the Jetsons again. <laughs> We're going to end up with that. Yes. That's what yes. I'm imagining. My friends. Which on way, their, Western man. Yeah. On their, uh, on their organic homesteads, uh, who, you know, are using like literally hand plows, uh, to, uh, to till their fields. Meanwhile, um, you know, their Bezos and his buddies are, are taking trips to Mars for the, for the holiday. Um, well, so I would agree with you there that I don't think uh, those two visions need to necessarily interfere with one another. But I would say that I think the more um, the more, you know, eco-conscious degrowth people, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, uh, are at a supreme disadvantage uh, in terms of their um, their war making capacity uh, in that sense, in that all of the tools of industry uh, and high technology that would be required to, uh, you know, defend themselves or to build weapon systems or anything along those lines would, of course, be in the hands of the techno futurists. Um, and so that is a... Right. They, they survive by being too small to matter. Not yeah, by, basically. Not by out-competing it on their own terms, right? 
Right, right. And, and then and then, of course, because they don't have any power uh, their you know, their future isn't really up to them. And that's actually my biggest problem with that vision is that uh, I just view it as so disempowering to sort of um, try to because uh, it's not really an escape. It's more like uh, you're descending into obscurity. Right. And because you don't affect anything else uh, that matters, you you get the choice to live how you would like. Um, and of course that is always contingent on other, someone else leaving you alone. And so that's my issue with it is that as soon as someone decides not to leave you alone, then you're kind of screwed. Um, so where do I want to go next? So I want to talk to you a little bit about your latest piece, um, because your latest piece was what actually inspired me to go ahead and invite you on the show, uh, which is called don't make me think. And uh, you did some really interesting, uh, it follows along very, uh, some of the themes that uh, exist in your other writings uh, and that we've been talking about here, this issue of, uh, of transhumanism, this issue of uh, technology, and in particular, uh, what you just said there about uh, kind of like an enclosed, an enclosed world, right? In which everything is sort of, um, is sort of measured and tracked uh, and yet there are always going to be these sort of existing little pockets where um, where, you know, various kinds of dissent or piracy or, uh, you know, sort of uh, mar marginal. And I mean that in the, the, the real term, uh, marginal communities uh, will sort of exist within this sort of, uh, you know, uh, omnipresent lattice uh, of networks. <clears throat> so. Uh, do you want to just briefly give an overview for those who aren't acquainted with it yet uh, of don't make me think? And then I have some questions for you about kind of the stylistic choices that you made in the piece. Yes, there are some questions there. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give an overview. So the story is actually a retelling of a short by Borges called uh, The Dead Man. And in this story, uh, there's sort of a, a young man who joins uh, a gang, like a, a mafia, and is led by a famous gangster. And this boy, he covets the authority and the power of the gangster. So he betrays him and tries to unseat him and take his power. But the gangster makes a mockery of him. He humiliates him. He lets him think he's running the show for a little bit, and then he kills him in front of everyone. And uh, I, I really, uh, my biggest influence as a fiction writer is certainly Borges, but I wanted to bring that story into this world of Neuralink enhanced people, people who have the, the brain implant that Elon Musk's Neuralink Corporation is developing. And uh, if you've seen the demos, it's really a remarkable thing. I think it's the most interesting of all of Elon's different companies, but also somehow the one that gets the least amount of press attention. He's got robots that perform neurosurgery and stick all these little fibers in your brain. And then through Bluetooth, the device streams these, these metrics out and they can predict exactly where all your joints are in your body. You can move a cursor. You can use it as an input device to control your computer. They have demos of monkeys like they train of the thing in minutes 
to understand what the monkey's doing with a joystick. Then they mm-hmm. disconnect the joystick and the monkey can drive the program with its brain. This is incredible. And if people, if this ever caught on in the way that smartphones did, it would change the world in a lot of really interesting and really horrifying ways. So in my story, I wanted to try to bring that to life. Yes. And, uh, you know, on the point about Neuralink, you know, what, what's happening there is basically they're, uh, they're, they're decoding the uh, electrical signals that, uh, you know, are attached to sort of the, the motor movements of the monkey uh, and uh, essentially just, you know, reversing reversing the uh, the order in which those are uh, are read out in order to um, you know match them to the actual movements and of course the implications for what other kinds of things you could do with that in terms of thought in terms of uh, in terms of even feeding back uh, and and maybe even controlling the the monkey himself uh, are uh, are ghastly uh, to say the least <clears throat> um so uh, I want to ask you particularly about the uh, the emoticons, <laughs> um, because I know you're getting a lot of um, you're getting a lot of different kinds of feedback on that, and it was an interesting uh, choice I think for you to make to include those. And I think when I when I sent you the message to invite you on the show, I wanted to bring it up because uh, it's something that I think uh, can easily be uh, thought of as kind of a gimmick or almost like a kitsch thing to do when in fact it, it, it doesn't strike me as being that at all. So for those of you who maybe haven't gone and found the piece yet, I'll just say that uh, throughout this entire piece, uh, zero HP basically um, comes up with this whole lexicon of uh, emoji characters, which are inserted along with the text at various points. Uh, the, well, I'll let him tell you a little bit about the attention. The intent, but the effect of which is to sort of bring up uh, kind of visual associations um, for someone that is reading this, along with the actual reading of the words themselves. And this has certain, I would say, um, neurological uh, functions. But I will let I will let Zero himself explain his choice to include those uh, right now. Yeah, so I knew it would be controversial when I did it, and a lot of people would just hate it or complain or refuse to read it. I was fully aware of that. And my sort of response to those people is that, well, it's not for you then. And that's that's just a fact. It's not like... I think people process it in very different ways. I was really interested to read the conversation on the Slate Star Codex Reddit where they were discussing it. You know, some people have a huge problem with it. They say, oh, it disrupts my, my flow. I can't read this. Someone said it nauseated them. Others said, oh, you know, I got used to it. It enhanced it. It added this other layer. I think it was a successful device. But the, the basic idea, and by the way, it took me over a month to annotate the entire text by hand with emoji. I spent actually quite a long time on this. Uh, and I tried to make sure that the grammar and the lexicon was as fully consistent as I as possibly could. But what I wanted to do was split out the sensory modality of reading and kind of intentionally break your brain a little bit because you're used to reading just words. We have we have like you know uh, a memory 
for that. Like it's something that becomes very second nature to us. But by adding this layer of symbols, it sort of breaks it out and forces you to read differently. And it takes effort. I'm not going to lie. It, if you, to focus on this text and to read it end to end, it is mentally taxing in a way that regular characters are not, which is one of the meanings of the title, Don't Make Me Think. It's also uh, the name of a famous book on usability that's popular among like web designers. But it's sort of a, a joke because in order to read this, I am making you think in a way that you're almost certainly not used to thinking, which is in this pictographic, ideographic way. And the hope is that for the characters in the story with their Neuralink implant, when they are doing anything, there is enhancement in their brain. I kind of allude to this a little bit, where people feel uh, extra emotions when they play video games, when they are driving a car or just like going through their day, they do their homework, they turn in a, a, an assignment at work, whatever it is, you know, the, the Neuralink device in, in my story rewards them with extra enhancements in terms of sensory perceptions and feelings and so on. So they are not living inside of, of their own heads. They're not having cognition the way you and I experiencing it. They're having this sort of juiced, that's what they call it, I don't know if you know this, there's um, a rumor that I was one of the main developers of Handy Crush. I will neither confirm nor deny that, but I will say that in the sort of freemium mobile space, mm -hmm. when they add all these little sparkles and bounces and sound effects to the loot boxes when they open or the, the you know power-ups, whatever it is, they refer to that as juicing it they say they make it juicy. And it just, it gives you this layer of satisfaction that is also addictive. So I wanted to try to do something to this text to give you a feeling like you yourself are going through that. What if every time you hear a word, you also see a picture associated with that word? What if I can bring up extra emotions and extra feelings as you read the text? It doesn't feel like reading the way you're used to it, but it does feel like something that I hope is novel. So my understanding of, uh, of working memory is that our, um, our language processing and our visual processing are on two separate tracks, roughly. Um, and of course, there's crosstalk and all of that. But uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the piece is that you're actually utilizing two different modalities of thinking uh, by if the reader uh, decides to engage with it in that way, that is interpreting both the letters and the emojis. Um, and so maybe people might not, might not realize that, that actually what's happening is your, your brain is literally context switching, um, whenever you are trying to process both. Um, and in fact, you're not processing the emoji with the same parts of your cognition that you're processing the words, even though you are reading the words. Um, so that was just an interesting, um, point, uh, for, for me having known that already, about the way that we, we do things when I was reading the essay. I will be honest with you, Zero. <laughs> I started off trying to interpret all of the emoji. And like you said, it does take work. So eventually, I think at some point, I just kind of, uh, you know, slid into a mode of more or less ignoring them. And that was kind of my way of dealing with it. Um, but it is interesting to me that you wanted to kind of um, 
elicit this almost synesthetic uh, uh, experience for the reader, right? That is, if you can evoke not only um, not only the 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 words themselves, and, and I think for those of us who are more um, verbally fluent, uh, we tend to sort of think a lot in words, <clears throat> but also to get these these feelings and these pictures, and maybe even other extrasensory components, you know, you could imagine a more enhanced version of this in which sort of like smells come out or something like that. Um, and of course there are, there, there, you could even have, um, you know, there's, there's um, uh, like haptic feedback, right? You could have haptic feedback, uh, you know, in your sitting in your computer uh, chair or your mouse or whatever, which people do with gaming controllers um, and all that could even enhance the experience. You know, you can imagine many different ways in which, uh, you could try to sort of transport someone to that place. Um, do you think about doing yeah. this with uh, with uh, like virtual reality at some point? I will continue to explore new way to present uh, fictional stories, and I wouldn't rule anything out. But at the moment, I don't have any cool new gimmicks planned. Uh, I think it has to happen sort of uh, sort of spontaneously and emergently. One other thing I will say about the emoji is that I had originally intended to sort of have this moment in the story when I flipped the switch and started dropping words and only using symbols. And the idea would be that if you had paid attention to the emoji, then you'd be able to parse the pure symbolic vocabulary and still understand the story without any words. I think that was very ambitious and I tried it a little bit towards the end that I found was that I personally struggled with it. So I knew that it would just be too much to ask uh, for the readers and I ultimately had to discard it. But so, okay. yeah, I think if I use virtual reality, I would. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, I don't know how much uh, how much feedback you've gotten. You're followed by enough people on Twitter that certainly you have um, you have fans, I would say, uh, all over the world. Um, so I wanted to ask you then, do you think that or have you actually heard anything about um, uh, non uh, native English speakers, particularly those who come from, uh, you know, East Asian uh, alphabets where the uh, the signage is more uh, visually oriented uh, rather than, um, you know, uh, I don't know how you would characterize our, our, our alphabets, but sort of linear alphabetic, yeah. Yeah, alphabetic sort of the Latin alphabet. Um, do you think that maybe they or have you heard anything about them uh, would be more um, adept at interpreting the emoji? It might be less work for them or even come more naturally to kind of Go, go into this visual mode with regard to their reading? Yeah, I haven't heard anything about it, but it is something that intrigues me. And it's something I, I definitely thought of in the composition of the work. I looked at, there is sort of a, uh, a Chinese motif throughout the story. I read quite a bit of uh, classic Chinese poetry in translation to write this story. And I tried to borrow some of their poetic ideas and words, uh, like language. There are some short poems, which I synthesized at other poems throughout the work as well. So I was very consciously thinking about the Chinese language when I put together 
the, the emoji lexicon that I used, but I haven't heard anything from any Chinese speakers or uh, uh, about their experience, no. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I, I wonder uh, if you'll end up getting some feedback on that eventually. I, I assume at some point someone will come across it and tell you uh, if that's the case. Um, that being said, Zero, um, I have a few more big questions to ask, and then I will uh, go ahead and let you let you go here. Um, one of the things that's sort of topical for today that I, I think we might address uh, is that, uh, and, and this is getting a little bit into kind of Twitter inside baseball stuff, but Bronze Age Pervert was, uh, was suspended. I believe that happened today. Um, he's been suspended before he's had his other accounts banned, but he's banned again. He may not come back this time. Um, that being said, uh, I'm not going to ask you about s- speculating why, you know, it's, it's clear that maybe there's no reason at all, but are you worried about getting banned, getting removed from these platforms? And how do you think about this issue of, uh, you know, banning, not banning, you know, doxing, et cetera, more generally. I know we talked a little bit about anonymity and pseudonymity uh, in the beginning. Um, you know, as someone who is sort of operating at least on the podcast level and more or less on Twitter under my own name, uh, I am obviously willing to adopt a certain amount of risk <clears throat> uh, in associating my online activities with my real self, uh, partly just because uh, I'm just really stubborn and also partly because I'm probably a little crazy um, that being said, uh, do you worry about getting banned yourself, uh, because of various associations that you might be involved in? Do you think that the online, uh, space of Twitter is sort of becoming a place where, uh, unoriginal thought, uh, I'm sorry, where original thought is becoming increasingly impossible, or are these sort of bannings just kind of par for the course in terms of, you know, regularly the regime kind of just throws the switch and just decides that someone needs to to uh, to disappear or have their presence downregulated. I thought has been difficult at in every age, and it has always been. It's been, and it's it's not as dangerous now in the U as it has been in other places and times, though there are many indicators that it is becoming so or that it will become so. Uh, If I get banned Twitter, I have some backup platforms. It probably would take some of the wind out of my sails. But I also think that I can't really stop myself from writing. It's just something I want to do, something I have to do. And uh, I will continue to exist in other venues, I hope, until maybe I get hounded off of those venues as well. We will see. Uh, Future is uncertain. But, you know, BAP has already respawned on Telegram. Uh, He had a BAP on Telegram. As of this, he has 7,600 subscribers. So I think uh, his, his book exists you know, you can, there's physical copies of it all over. People buy it as gifts and like give it around. So I think he's going to endure in some form. Uh, I hope that I will as well. But yeah, I, every morning I sort of like 
go through my morning routine and when I log on, I always sort of have this question of like, does my account still exist? I don't know. I, <laughs> you just have to take it one day at a time in that sense. Uh, and um, for the normies listening, or uh, for those of us who uh, do go under our own identities, uh, do you have any advice uh, for what we might do to avoid uh, our inevitable cancellation. Um, you know, one of the things I joke about with this podcast is like, well, the best thing for my business uh, that could possibly happen is me getting canceled <laughs> because I know so many people who uh, were operating just going along normally and then they got canceled. And then after they got canceled, uh, they, they came back way bigger than they were before um, or they at least were able to rally a bunch of support that they, uh, they weren't previously getting. Now, I'm not wishing that on myself. It's an extremely stressful um, and potentially you know, fraught with danger uh, process to be, to be going through. Um, and so I don't think that cancellation is necessarily good for you, um, but it is always sort of in the back of my mind, like uh, at what point am I going to say the wrong thing or become big enough or create uh, enough of a stir that, uh, that someone is going to come after me so far Nobody that I know of has, you know, even attempted to bother with it, partly because I, I take some prudent measures in terms of what I'm willing to say uh, online and in public, but partly also because I'm just not that relevant at this point. Um, so do you think that uh, it, there is a way to continue operating um, for those of us who are doing so under our own names? Or do you think that eventually everyone will sort of have to um, have to retreat into uh, various uh, shades of, uh, of anonymity. No, they, they can't cancel everyone. Uh, and also there are degrees of cancellation, right? Like if you get canceled in the sense of you get fired from your job and you're an, a journalist or a person who works in media in any way, then they say, oh, cancellation doesn't hurt you. And they're sort of right because infamy can drive you know your popularity but the real cancellation which is sort of a degree beyond that is when your bank accounts get down you get put on no fly list look at uh, alex jones right this is a man who was like he didn't get canceled and come back he just got deleted uh there are other even less savory elements on the internet uh people who were kicked off of their their ISP, people who um, were kicked off of Cloudflare, which is, uh, for those who don't know, a web service that basically allows you to serve your site to a large audience, even when you're at the risk of getting attacked by like denial of source attacks and things like that. Basically, it prevents you from getting uh, overloaded by like a, a popularity attack, if, if, you, if you don't understand these things. Anyway, so there's, there's a degree of cancellation, which can be really which I would, I would almost call fake cancellation. Like, okay, you got fired from your job at like an imperial news organ. That's a type of cancellation. That only hurts. I'm sure it sucks. But then there's like the kind where, you know, you can no longer use PayPal and Patreon and uh, you, your credit cards stop working. You get locked out of your bank accounts and you can't book a flight. That's the type of cancellation that I'd be worried about but again, they can't do it to everyone. They can't do it to uh, 80 million Trump supporters, for example. 
if you do that, you don't have a cancellation, you have an insurrection. So it works best as kind of a, a camp of terror where you never know who it's going to strike. It could be someone big, it could be someone small, but it's always just a tiny minority and sort of the fear of the lash keeps the majority in check. So you probably don't have to worry as long as you, you mostly stick to the Overton window is what I would say. Yeah, I, I believe that to be true. Um, and I think also that uh, anyone that is seriously worried about it, I, I think, well, for one, I would say uh, that as the consequences of speaking out against whatever the Overton, wherever the Overton window is at that day, um, become more severe, people are going to begin to take more precautions, right? In terms of having backups, in terms of, uh, you know, even, even um, uh, uh, compartmentalizing their financial lives, you know, moving more into, uh, into cryptocurrencies and things along those lines. Um, you know, I know Alex Jones is still operating. I, I'm sure he's still making millions a year uh, running Infowars. And he did get his bank accounts closed and all that stuff. But, you know, really, they haven't totally destroyed the man. And of course, he had a, he had a, a large enough and well-established enough uh, entity already that even with all of the pressure that was put on him, um, he was able to sort of still basically, you know, float away. And, and now he's relegated to whatever corner uh, of the internet, uh, you know, they, they, they allow him to be on. Um, that being said, uh, yeah, the financial cancellation, like sort of the denial of service, uh, and I don't mean DDO, DDoS hacks, I mean, denial of service in that, you know, Bank of America says, sends you a letter and says, you know, you can't transact with us anymore. And, and by the way, we're going to seize whatever's left in your account. Um, that is extremely scary uh, for most people who are not, uh, you know, extraordinarily wealthy. And so, um, yeah, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the future that is going to look like, but you're right that they can't do it to tens of millions of people, because at that point, you just have a, a whole, you're, you're essentially just declaring uh, a large uh, chunk of the population to be second class citizens uh, or enemies of the state, even. Um, and which, uh, <laughs> and I've talked about on here already, the, the new war on terror is coming for us all and it's, it's being aimed at us, um, which is fun. But uh, anyway, um, Zero, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this has been a great conversation. A last thing before I go. Uh, what can people expect to see from you in the future? What have you been working on? Uh, what are your thoughts about the future of Zero HP Lovecraft? Well, my next project is a, a physical book, which I'm uh, working with Canonic.xyz. It's a uh, limited edition, leather-bound, uh, hardback, very high-quality printing. We're only going to make about 200 of them 200 wow. of them uh, they're going to be uh, so that's going to be an anthology of all of the stories i have written to date plus some notes and introductions and and uh sorted thoughts that go along with it so i'm really excited for that i, I think it's a really unusual project most people go with like the amazon print on demand paperback Nothing wrong with that, and I may 
uh, look into that at a later date, uh, sort of after the limited edition has had its chance to, to kind of be disseminated and run its course. Uh, so that's my, my next immediate goal. Other than that, I'm going to be working on more essays for my sub stack, probably get back into tweeting threads as opposed to just sort of like off shit posts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll go wherever the muse takes me. Cool. Well, uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I also think that uh, that uh, strategy of um, uh, of like intentional or strategic scarcity is uh, supremely undervalued, uh, particularly when you're talking about rare rare items uh, that people are producing. Maybe we'll see a zero HP NFT at some point. Uh, anyway. Yes, uh, well, so the book will be sold as an NFT. Oh, okay. Awesome. That's, yeah. that's how it works. Right. Yeah. So you buy, the way it works is you buy the NFT and then you can mm -hmm. redeem the NFT exactly one time for a physical copy of the book. Yeah, and then that's only going to be 200. So it will eventually become a, a rare artifact. Yes. Uh, cool. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, this is a, a blast and uh, I'll see you on Twitter. Yeah, thanks for having me on.